Hello, you are listening to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Jane. And I'm Sophia Frey. Today we'll be talking about corporations and how they're getting all up in our social medias. So I want to open this topic by talking briefly around the concept of authenticity and its value as like a kind of social currency on the internet. Because like in our age of social media, where everything that we do as individuals is documented and curated and shared, the difference between a life that you live and a life that you perform starts, it starts getting muddy. And on the internet, the idea of authenticity becomes like really rare and really scarce. And so real, actual, authentic moments between you and friends or even strangers on the internet, they become significant cultural currency. And businesses, of course, want to tap into that. They want to sell us things. Uh, But it's really hard for them because unless the corporation is tweeting out like, buy our product, buy our service, or like, give us money. Whatever they're saying is going to be, by definition of their bottom line, inauthentic to some degree. And we, as internet denizens, we we fucking hate ads. And we've been learning to hate ads since the birth of the internet. So much so that, I think it was like around about the late 90s, early 2000s-ish, there's this thing that we developed called banner blindness. It's a it's a thing that you find in usability studies when you get people to look at your website and see how they use it. It basically means if we see anything that like even remotely looks like an ad, we'll just ignore it and we won't even like acknowledge it and then ignore it. We'll like we won't even remember seeing it. Uh, so of course businesses and corporations, they want to make the ads look less like ads. They want to seem authentic. They want to seem real. And some corporations have done this uh, terribly, like Hacker Hair Dry, which I'm sure Sophia will tell us all about later. Um, some corporations have done this weirdly well, like Denny's, and others have like fallen somewhere in between. So Sophia, I think you've got some pretty interesting examples of that. Um, So I think particularly I was very intrigued when H&M released an ad campaign which was hailed as being sort of feminist and wonderful and look, there's a woman with like armpit hair and, you know, there are plus-size models wearing H&M's clothes, which if you've ever been to an H&M is frankly a little bit laughable um, (laughs) because, my Lord, they go up to 12 and stop swiftly. (laughs) Um, But I think something that also came out during that ad campaign was the fact that H&M's standards in their factories, the way they treat their predominantly female factory workers, was absolutely horrendous. And so there was this very sharp dissonance between the authenticity kind of that they were trying to portray in the same way that like Dove much better and I think much more genuinely often portrays authenticity with their beauty um, projects. and that tension alongside the fact that we, we all kind of know that H&M clothes are factory made and not made in like good factories, but made in very bad factories, often in Southeast Asia, often like mistreating a lot of people. Um, I think that was one of the first examples of something being that sharp in an advertisement that was that widely spread. Uh, and it was certainly something that you know made me more interested 
in the topic overall. I think the other, um, and you mentioned Denny's in the introduction, and Denny's is one of my favorite <laughs> bizarre things, partly because, like, we don't have Denny's in Melbourne, mm. or I might have seen, like, one at one point. So, like, I'm never at risk of being affected by this advertising. So I can sort of see it and be like, yeah, okay, and keep going. Um, but Denny's has a Tumblr account, which is, widely known as one of the more ridiculous Tumblr accounts that are out there um, because they just post things that make very little sense. But they have like very weird gifts and things that are, don't judge me on how I say that, and things that just like don't make any sense to see. And here we have a mummy that's made out of bacon. Um, but also it interacts with people. And that's a key difference for authenticity, and that's something that people really, really notice. If someone, if someone submits a question to the Denny's Tumblr, it will answer. One of my favorite posts that I've seen once is um, uh, Denny's is probably freaking out that they can't use the phrase "Let's McFreakin' lose it," <laughs> and, and Denny's reblogged it. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> no, um, one of the questions Denny's answered that five days ago and I'm on the blog now is um would you want to help me with my college essays I can't think of think of a topic and the Denny's response was how much is too much overconsumption in America and the dilemma of all you can eat pancakes and so it's quite clearly like self-aware on how slightly ridiculous it is and like mm. the weirdness of and I feel like places like Denny's also already have a bit of a weirdness associated with them like it's like when you go in McDonald's after midnight it's just kind of like, oh, this is this is the twilight zone. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird, like, transient space where, I don't know, reality is kind of bent and you feel <laughs> like you're in a movie kind of thing. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. But it's that, it's the interactivity that makes it, like, feel more legitimate, whereas a lot of other places will have, like, very strict PR rules. And so, mm. well, they can have blogs or they can have Tumblrs or they can have Twitter accounts, there are rules about how they can interact with, the rest of the world and so like while Denny could reblog let's McFreakin' lose it any other company that has that kind of tumblr probably couldn't hmm. and I guess we should mention that Denny's has been doing this for um at least a year and a bit from my recent memory probably more now I mean and back then like companies did not have the social media game that Denny's did I can see them trying to do that now, though. They are definitely trying, and they're definitely trying to be more personable in their interactions with people. It's still weird, though, because like they are this faceless company trying to become human. <laughs> it kind of feels like um, that, I don't know if it's a movie or TV series, where Steve Buscemi um, goes to the high school Oh yeah. says, how are you doing, fellow kids? That's how I feel about corporations trying to interact with me. Yeah. Whereas Denny's is just like a weird kid from a very bizarre family. And you're like, okay, Denny's, what have you got today? Oh, a weird um, gif of like a foot that's actually a chicken tender. All right, cool. Um, going back to what you were talking about with H&M, it is, it's one of those things that I've noticed like throughout the years, corporations, I mean, especially businesses that are focused on women, such as H&M and, and Dove, they kind of, like, they latch on to uh, feminist words, feminist prose, a lot of feminist buzzwords, and they try and, you know, sell to feminists. But 
at the same time, much like H&M, their company or their parent companies, they embody a lot of specifics that feminism is fighting against. And, and that also feels really weird and inauthentic, much yeah. like, I don't know, just like when, when companies try and sell me like feminist lipstick and empowering makeup and like a feminist outfit, that there's just something very, very fake about that. That oh, I can't really put my finger on, yeah. There's also the other thing where if you're not in some way unhappy with your body, you generally don't want to buy things. Mm. Or like your body, your life, yourself. And so a lot of things that are being sold to us are being sold to us in a way which is like, we can give you the perfect life. Mm. We can provide you like the, the good life. We can give that to you. And I think like Dove does it in a very, so like Dove is what I know the most about. Um, Probably. I've have a degree in genetics this is in no way my area um dove dove is the one that i probably know a little bit more about and that they have those kind of beauty like campaigns and like long videos mm. where where an artist will like draw a woman as their friends describe them and then draw the woman as the woman describes them and they're like oh my god it's so different and like mm. that's all good that can have good in the world but it is always done in pursuit of that bottom line it's always done in pursuit of profit, and that's because, you know, we live in a capitalist society, and that's what goes. Yeah. So here's an interesting question. Like, at what point does... At what point is this a, a more a good thing than it is a bad thing? You know what? Let me rephrase it. This... <laughs> that's <laughs> it... a tough question! <laughs> so, I mean... Okay, so... Companies, they do advertising, and advertisements are a part of the media landscape. And because of that, they contribute to our culture. And so if they're contributing good things like body positivity and inclusivity, like that and diversity, that's that's good, right? Even if they're trying to sell us things, they're, they're telling the world and they're making a contribution to our culture in such a way that says we are a culture that values diversity, that values body positivity. So that's a good thing. But at what point is that inauthenticity? At what point is, I don't know, is that kind of manipulative side of it, at what point does that become not okay? I think when it becomes manipulative, right? So, like, there are a lot of companies who, like, while quite genuinely will have advertising in order to increase their bottom line, but are also just, like, good, right? Like, they're Mm. environmentally aware. They encourage diversity. They, like, are cool. They're they're a cool company. Um, Yeah, so this is, like, what I think about Lush, right? Lush is really cool. Yeah. Um, And I I thought that about Dove as well. Um, But Dove is owned by Unilever, and Unilever owns uh, Axe and Lynx as well. So it's kind of like... How I mean, much do I like this? I really like you, but also your parent company sucks. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Dove is also one of the companies that sell skin whitening products, uh, mm. which I have precisely zero time for. <laughs> Generally, like, if a company is selling skin whitening products, they're gross and horrible. Um, but yeah, so like, I mean, I think it's quite important to just be sceptical of the advertising you engage in and the products you buy and just remember that, you know, they are products, they are commodities and advertising is a way to get you to spend money. Like, I love Lush. I absolutely adore it. Mm. Um, 
And I'm also well aware that the support for marriage equality in New Zealand probably got a lot more people buying Lush. Yeah. I appreciate it. I think it was really good. But I also know that that probably helped their bottom line. Yeah. Which, again, is, like, fine, right? To a point. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of, like, I think it's good to be aware of that. Otherwise, you are essentially just, like, not... You're not being a conscious consumer, and I think that's really, really important. Mm. Um, because, like, if we're all going to be, like, tiny cogs in a giant capitalist machine, I'd much rather <laughs> be a self-aware cog. Yeah. What, um, what is so hilarious to me is, you know, like, when you when you walk into a souvenir shop or something and you see Banksy prints being sold or like, Oh God, yes. Like anti-capitalist art being sold. And you're just like, but don't you mean. (laughs) Mate, there is a Banksy exhibition in Melbourne right now. And (laughs) do you have to pay to get in? Yeah. You have to pay to get in. (laughs) Step one. You literally exit through the gift shop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that Banksy. So it's just like, there was a beautiful write up on junkie about like why it was the worst thing that's ever been created. Um, (laughs) And essentially just, like, it goes against all of the ideas of Banksy and, like, gra- like street art, graffiti artists. Like, the entire point of things like that is to disrupt things. Like, and part of it is, like, to do something that is against the rules, mm. right? Like, you are disrupting society in a way because, like, there's a risk associated to it. You're, you're breaking the law, right? Like, but you're also making a statement about the laws that exist. Mm. And to enshrine that and to say like pay twenty dollars to come in and see like Banksy being angry about the government, which like as trite as some of Banksy's stuff is, like, it's just so antithetical to the entire point of it. Yeah. So gross. <laughs> oh so so oh irony. So much I think irony. It's like Twenty dollars to get in or something. It's absolutely ridiculous. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> To see street and the the whole idea of street art is that it's pretty much anonymous. It's it's pseudo anonymous, and you're not doing it for fame or for money. You're doing it to spread a message. You're doing it for and it's. I mean, it has traction because it's a it's an authentic art form. It's an and everyone can expression. see it. Like yeah. there's no barrier to entry to see street art. Precisely, except in Melbourne currently there is. In that museum. <laughs> oh, God. And there was, like, the additional <laughs> irony that it, um, so, I think the exhibition is being held in a square in Melbourne that looks and acts like a public space, but actually has to be hired in order to hold a public space, like, any public event there, and it costs, like, tens of thousands of dollars or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, cool, loving this. Ah, oh, maximum Banksy irony. Excellent. <laughs> Man, capitalism is weird. Yep. <laughs> is China becoming more capitalist or? Uh, yeah, it's it's becoming capitalist in a in a weird way because not only because uh, their government works differently there and um and a lot of things like if capitalism isn't going the way that they want to, they can. Um, put a pause on it, they can control it in certain ways. Regulations are easier to implement there. Uh, But it's also very strange because a lot of the consumerist philosophy or the consumerist way of life is very against the traditional culture there. So, 
I mean, as you probably would have heard, there's been a lot of um, real estate investment and development in China where they're building just lots and lots of apartment buildings. Okay. And, yeah, and they're, they're going up, like, at such a speed. But they're all empty. They can't fill them. And no one wants to buy them because the Chinese have this saving mentality. It's not like us in the West where it's like, oh, I have money, let's spend it, let's live it up, let's, you know, get myself a nice apartment, you know, I can, this is an investment for my future kind of thing. It's, the culture there is more like, okay, so I have some money, I could afford this apartment, but I'd rather that I save it and pass it on to the rest of my family and I can, you know, live in slightly worse conditions and I can just suck it up and that's fine. I'd rather save that money. And so, I mean, yes, capitalism is thriving in China just because there's so many, uh, just because there's so many potential customers, just because there's so many people and there's so many consumers and therefore workers as well. It's, it is hitting a wall when it comes to things like real estate, when it comes to things like um, higher price goods because of this cultural mentality of saving. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Did you notice much advertising while you were in China, or barely any? I noticed a lot of advertising, but I also noticed, uh, noticed a lot of empty billboards. So I'm not sure whether that's a testament to just how fast the country is expecting itself to expand yeah. and like it's not catching up to its expectation or if it's because um, the demand for advertising isn't large enough. Probably a combination of both. But yeah, there, there were a lot of ads. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Developing worlds. No, I think, I think it's really great. Um, it'll be interesting to see how China sort of develops into like a more capitalist culture because I think there are some quite strong, I mean, you'd know this better than me, but there are probably some quite strong cultural things there that would suggest it shouldn't develop quickly or it might develop weirdly. And it'll be it'll be really interesting to watch. I think it'll be um, pretty cool, particularly from Australia and New Zealand as some of the major trading partners. Well, yeah. China's, China's one of our major trading partners. Let's not be too self-important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I mean, definitely the most, interesting things that I noticed was um, their use of the internet, because Chinese internet is um, different, <laughs> let's say that, and, <laughs> because of the firewall. And, um, and yet it's this thriving ecosystem, and their app ecosystem is just so much more different to us. I mean, this is probably like a different episode, but they have, like, everything is in one app, and the integration is incredible. Like, I tried to buy some water from a vending machine, and I was trying to, like, now that I think about it, I must have looked so dumb. I was trying to put <laughs> cash into the vending machine, and it wouldn't take my cash. And I was, like, um, there was a a local who was showing us around, and he was like, oh, here, this is what you do. And he selected the water that I wanted. This QR code pops up on the screen. He scans it with his phone, inputs a PIN number, and then the water drops out of the vending machine. Oh my god. It was the future. It, you were in the future. It's legitimately the future. I, and it just, like, I just stood there thinking about 
all of the like cooperation between different companies to make that work. Like his app had to talk to this vending machine company that then had to talk to his bank account that then had to verify it was him and he wanted the order that then had to be like, oh, you're at this vending machine at this subway in Beijing <laughs> and you want this water. Here you go. Oh my God. It was I incredible. Mean, the closest we're really going to get to that in the West is from like um, monolithic companies like Google, yeah. and Facebook, just being yeah. able to provide multiple services. Because and they own like, all the data. I used to make the joke back in like 2011, like, you know, I for one welcome our new Google overlords, but right. <laughs> Isn't that becoming a reality? <laughs> yeah. It's more like um, multiple overlords now because everyone's getting in on this data collection thing. Everyone's getting in on, hey, now that we're talking about data collection, yes, yes. Let's, let's circle this back to advertising and to corporations. Let's talk about yeah. metadata. Well, I was going to briefly make the point that it really – so firstly, I have Adblock on all of my browsers because yes. I'm a human and Very I hate good. the internet. <laughs> um, but secondly, like, it kind of creeps me out how Google will advertise things to me based on stuff I've emailed. Yep. How are they allowed to do that? <laughs> how much does Google know about me and should I be worried? Um, this is a metadata question. <laughs> <laughs> There's a one quote from Edward Snowden that is really pertinent here in what he said is, metadata doesn't lie. And he's saying this in the context of government surveillance. So, you know, people can look through your email, people can look through content, your messages, whatever. Um, and you can, you can lie in those. You can try and deceive. You can say, you can encrypt your messages. You can do all these bunch of things to try and throw surveillance off. One thing you can't do is lie with metadata. Metadata is data about data. So metadata is saying, hey, person A sent this email to person B at this time. And you can't lie about that because then your email wouldn't get sent in the first place. And so that's that's something that just tells you how powerful even metadata is. Now, in the case that you're describing, that's metadata plus actual data because Google is reading the actual contents of your email. And they can totally do that because they own your email. They own my email too. <laughs> they own basically all of our email. They own our search histories. Um, in many cases, they own our browser history. It depends on what uh, what checkboxes you tick. Sometimes they'll own... So sometimes they'll own like an anonymized, quote-unquote anonymized version of that, um, and sometimes they won't. They'll own the whole thing. But this is the price that we pay nowadays for nice free services because this is how Google makes money. It collects very, very... And this is how Facebook makes money too. Mm. They collect very, very detailed data about our personal lives. And Facebook does this thing that Google's now trying to do is that they also know what we look like and who we hang out with to the point where like we can upload party photos and we don't even have to tag our friends. Facebook already knows who's in those photos. Yeah. That has kind of creeped me out. <laughs> it's super creepy. Um, but that's what their business is. Their business is in building up a really, really detailed personal profile about all of us um, to sell to advertisers. 
Yeah, so recently yeah. I've had Facebook, like, check in with me about the ads it's showing me. So it'll show mm -hmm. me, like, an ad and be like, are you actually interested in this content? Has it done that to you? Yes, yes. Okay. I just kind of accepted it because it's all Harry Potter so far. And I was like, yeah, I'm interested <laughs> in it. Keep showing me Harry Potter things I could buy. Yeah, it's interesting how they frame it as well. Because um, it's similar to Facebook's, like, hey, we noticed that, you know, your friends are in your photos. Is this your friend? Alice, is this your friend Bob? And they make it like a game. So you're like, oh, yes, this is my friend Alice. Or no, this is my friend Charlie. Um, and while you're playing this game, Google does it too. You're actually helping their artificial intelligence learn better and know you better. <laughs> oh. so, nice one. <laughs> These are gross. Like, I've heard the saying a few times, like, if you're not paying for it, you're the product. Mm -hmm. and that definitely feels like it's becoming increasingly true for like everything almost we use on the internet like either you're having paid access to something or you're being advertised to and your data is getting collected and people have all of that information about you which like yeah. doesn't feel good no <laughs> <laughs> um this might be a good time for me to mention because you mentioned you run adblock yeah so Adblock has recently been bought out by a company. Uh, I'm not sure what company, but they're rather untrustworthy. So I want to suggest an alternative to Adblock. Okay. It's called uBlock Origin. It's open source. It does pretty much the same thing, except it doesn't um, now sell your data. <laughs> Which is okay, now what good. Adblock does. Um, there's also another browser extension called Privacy Badger. And this basically shows you all of the trackers on a given web page. And there's usually lots. Um, because websites, they'll get paid for clicks and they'll also get paid to put trackers on their website that track your data. Um, yeah, so is that like cookies? It includes cookies, yeah. So when you install this thing, it'll tell you what trackers on the site are tracking you, which aren't. They'll block a few for you, block only the cookies for some others, and let some others through. And uh, you can tweak it however you like. Um, you can also like disable it temporarily if things aren't working, and then re-enable it. But those are like the two main ones that I always use. You block Origin for blocking ads, and Privacy Badger for blocking trackers. Cool. I have just installed you block Origin. Awesome. Yeah, uninstall Adblock. It's it's yeah. pretty dodgy and now. <laughs> and, and a few ads were getting through it, which yeah. I was like getting increasingly uncomfortable with because either you know if you're called Adblock, you should block your ads. Yeah, yeah. It would it'd be good. Maybe we should do an episode about like um, privacy and security. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, I'm pretty interested in like. Brian. Brian. Um, <laughs> I can do this, I promise. <laughs> Take your time, I have the power of editing. <laughs> well, essentially, like, advertising has given us um, a lot of old media, so things like newspapers, radios, um, television broadcasts are all based on the idea that like you know people buy ad space and then you can provide 
you know, all of this writing and all of this journalistic beauty for very cheap or for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone could kind of have the dollar for a newspaper and read it. And that was really, really good. And it meant everyone had access to what was going on in the world. Um, like one of the things that certainly contributed to the death of the journalists um, is that you have increasing amounts, not just of like free content that's paid for by internet advertising or even content that can be produced automatically to an extent, mm-hmm. but also like the number of citizen journalists that are essentially popping up and like they don't even care if they're not making any money off whatever <laughs> they're writing. They're just like writing for the fun of it, for the exposure. That's the lifestyle now. And um, I was wondering what like you kind of thought of that and how that interplays with um, sponsored articles particularly. Yeah, it's a really... It's an extremely tricky problem because I think as a society everyone agrees that we need quality journalism and there hasn't been a a more pertinent time for us to have quality journalism and we're lacking that so much. And I mean, currently, the only way to really support quality journalism is to either A, subscribe to your new source of choice which which a lot of people aren't going to do just because you know it's 2016 we get our news from multiple sources we don't just go to one place and that's it so it's and also we're internet users so we're stingy as fuck like to get us to pay money you'd have to be incredibly good and appeal to us like specifically as individuals or have a proven brand. So yeah. things like the Australian, the A's, and the New York Times can all manage to do that. Yeah. Um, particularly if they do the um often they do the like you get five free articles a month and then pay for access, which I think is a very canny kind of way of yeah. managing yeah, that. Anyway, continue. Yeah, yeah. It's I saw I saw a great tweet that was like, um, the only hope Trump has now of winning the election is that um that everyone has used up their 10 free Washington Post articles of October. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But yeah, like either either we can subscribe to our new source of choice or to multiple if we're, you know, if we're rolling in money, uh, or we can turn off ad block. And we're not going to turn off ad block because I that ha- sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if the site asks me to, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so the and i've been and i've been like in an internal struggle about this for a long time because because i rang hungry for for a year and a half so i mean i really understand the plight of content publishers you know you need money to run a site you need money to to pay people for their work you can't just ask for free writing that's just not okay and where are you going to get that money from well okay the the accepted way, the most common way, and the easiest way is to just put ads on your site. But here's the here's the thing about ads, is that you're not in control of the code that runs on your website anymore. And this can mean, and a lot of ads do this, they can run any code that um, an ad purchaser wants you to run. And a lot of times this is malicious code. These are so, you know, it might be in the form of a virus, it might be in the form of trying to execute arbitrary code on your computer, and that's 
dangerous. That's not cool. That's not cool for your security. That's not cool for your privacy. And so, and Forbes, like the ad network that was on Forbes, which, by the way, is one of those sites that tells you to turn off your ad blocker to access the website. One of the ad networks that are on there, they were caught distributing malicious content. And so it's like, okay, I can't really ask people, even as a content publisher, to turn off ad block because that's just unsafe now on the web. So how do we... And this is a really big problem and a really big question for publishers everywhere nowadays is like how do we make money <laughs> how do we become sustainable and how do we fucking pay our journalists so we still have journalists because goddamn, we need journalists i don't know yeah a lot of the um particularly smaller publishing groups that i know essentially run on the smell of an oily rag and like certainly that's what we do mm. um and but there's also the increasing desire to pay people who submit content, which I think is really, really good. And I think in the early days Absolutely. of the internet, that might not have existed and like zines and things like that, where it's just like, you do it for the love, you do it for the exposure, mm. you do it because it's just what you want to do with your life. Except now, like, when you pitch an article, when you write an article, when you work with an editor, you will get something for what you do. And that might not be very much, but it's saying like, look, we have very little, but we love what you do for us. We would not mm. exist without our writers please take these dollars. Yeah. And this is something that I'd love to, like, solve with Hungary if possible as well. Because it's, like... I mean, it's so inspiring that people have come forward and dedicated so much time and love and sweat and tears to it. And and we appreciate that so much. And it's just not cool if we can't pay that back in some way. Yeah. So, yeah, it... I don't know. It's a it's a tricky problem, and I and I hope that we find we as in like the wider internet community. I hope that we find a good solution for it because I do believe that a well functioning society needs good journalists and good journalism, and that's something that we're seeing disappear very quickly. I mean, they're fighting, but. It's, it's they're yeah. living in a world that's unsustainable. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty tough out there. So I have a lot of respect for anyone who's sort of making making a go of it. Mm. Um I mean, I think companies like all of us, regardless of what kind of company they are, they're just kind of doing their best. They're trying to figure out what's happening in a very quickly changing world. Um and that's really impressive. Because mm. the world is changing a lot and it's horrifying. It is. The internet is is a glorious and horrifying place. Actually, here's something. So, yeah. I think this is true. Please correct me if you know differently. Mm. So, I think New Zealand and the US are the only two places in the world where pharmaceutical companies are allowed to advertise directly to patients. Yes. I don't what know do you about... think about that? <laughs> I don't know about the only two companies, but it is very rare. I understand it to be very, very strange. Um, and I didn't know that you could do that in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know all the hay fever ads? Oh. That. I guess so. So, it's less hardcore in New Zealand than it is in the US, but it is there. Mm. I think it's something very um, bizarre. I find, I find pharmaceutical advertising very, very odd 
because yeah. essentially they're often trying to sell drugs that are chemically very similar. They might be um, uh, patent drugs that are made in a particular way and they want people to trust the brand name or mm. they're trying to sell Me Too drugs, which are drugs that are just chemically different enough to get another patent um, alongside a very innovative drug that has got a patent. Um, and like this has always kind of bothered me because if as a pharmaceutical company you wanted to make money, you would just make a better drug to my mind. Yeah. Like, oh, if only that was how it worked. If only. It just seems like if you want to, so like um, Viagra was the money maker for Pfizer for years and it was originally, I think, meant to be a blood pressure drug of some kind and then it gave meant erections and libido increased and so they started selling it like that and you know made a lot of money off that and Viagra was like the name it is still the name the little blue pills everything about <laughs> it is so marketable but it also was marketable because it was good right because it worked because it did what it said it did and didn't have many side effects and so like this and I know it makes Sense, and I know all the theory behind capitalism. I've just been bitter about that for the past half hour. But like, it does kind of bother me in medical tech. And yeah, in you have every right to be bothered. Like, yeah, it is. It's super weird. And I think, I mean, this is kind of going off the topic of corporations in our social feeds. But when so pharmaceutical companies advertising their drugs. It's interesting because I think it has a lot to do, their effectiveness has a lot to do with how the health system works. Because I have a sneaky suspicion, and I could be wrong, that the reason why it's seen so often in the States, and it's more or less quite rare in New Zealand, is because we have very different health systems. Um, The American system, as everyone probably knows, is highly privatized it's very much like you're you're paying for a service you're you go to the doctor and you're you're paying for a specific thing um like their time or you want them to look at a specific ailment and it's a it's a very transactional kind of relationship whereas in public health systems um and it's getting less like that in new zealand which is kind of scary if you ask me um but in public health systems it's less transactional and it's more to do with, hey, you have your own doctor and their incentives aren't necessarily to prescribe you drugs that you want. Their, incentive, uh, their incentives are not 100% to make you happy. They have other incentives driving them. Um, whereas in the States, it's all about that service. It's all about that transactional relationship. And so that's what I what I suspect why pharmaceutical ads are so common and they, they work so well in the States is because you don't necessarily trust your doctor to to provide you with all the options, I'm not sure. Like Yeah. And so you, you ask your doctor about these specific things and they're like, Oh, okay, I can prescribe you this or I can't prescribe you this Whereas here you're like you go to your doctor and you say, I have this problem, what do you think? And they'll yeah. say, according to your, you know, past medical records, I reckon this is probably, um, go home and sleep it off and drink lots of yeah. water is usually <laughs> the response I get. So that's good. And there are things like, um, 
there are things like the effect that brand name has. So even if you're aware that a branded product, so um, Panadol as opposed to paracetamol, has no additional effects, mm. it will still result in greater pain relief. Like it results in bigger effects. And so there's oh, always wow. that interplay when it comes to advertising as well. As if you have a brand name, if you have a Pfizer drug, people are going to look at that and go, that's going to make me like more better than the generic drug. <laughs> and it actually... Like the placebo effect is greater with brand names. Is that is that what you were saying? Well, I mean, there's an additional placebo effect with brand names right. as opposed to generic name. That's incredible. Yeah, which is like also very like, and that kind of interplays in like advertising and stuff as well because that's how brand names kind of get their traction, and like mm-hmm. that is also very very bizarre to me. I think um particularly working in an area where I'm kind of trying to test potential treatments Mm. uh, and the treatment I'm working on is like a vitamin derivative. So it's never going to make anyone any money. And like, thankfully, like I have a funding body for the diseases I'm looking at. So like they, you know, supply things that won't make anyone any money, but might actually cure diseases. And it's, Mm both very confusing and very, very hard not to be cynical yeah. as you sort of go through that process. Um, I looked it up. Uh, the three mm-hmm. nations that permit direct-to-consumer advertising in the pharmaceutical industry are New Zealand, the United States, and Brazil. So, uh-huh. yep, that's us. We're in the Cool Kids Club. Yeah. Um, and then on the flip side, something I found very strange in Australia is Australia has much looser laws surrounding advertising of gambling, so yes, there are I have heard about that. advertisements about gambling everywhere, and it's so weird. Um, and there are ads that are, like, talking about how much easier it is to bet online. So, like, one of the ones that comes up before YouTube videos a lot uh, talks about how, like, oh, if you call up and try and place a bet, you'll get a recorded voice saying how bad gambling is and how it'll ruin your life. Mm. Just bet online and then pictures of beautiful women and it's like, oh no, what are you doing? That's bad. It's very cultural here. Mm-hmm. Like with with the Melbourne Cup, um, with the AFL grand final. Um so right. the Australian Rules football, which I know very little about except it's played on Oval Field. Um Okay. Uh, the grand final happened and it was very exciting for Melbourne because the mm-hmm. team from Melbourne was in it. Uh, And I made a comment to my barista one day. I was just like, oh, yeah, like, I'm not that bothered about it. Like, Mm -hmm. it's cool. And she was like, oh, you know the way to be interested? Place a bet. I was like, oh, I'm going to keep being nice to you because you make my coffee every day. But, oh, my God. (laughs) Goodness. Wow. So I guess, like, this is definitely a very, very real-world example of that. Uh, of how advertising contributes to our culture. And I guess in that sense, because you sent me that H&M article, just to like come full yeah. circle here, and I had a quick skim through it, and I was so torn. Like, that article just made me so torn. Because I understood that they were being completely hypocritical. Like, they were talking about how they care about people and they didn't their actions um, meant that they obviously didn't care enough to actually stand up for those people their their factory workers but at the same time they're releasing a lot of really positive images and a lot of really positive 
messages out into the open world, out into the public, and it becomes a part of our culture, and that's valuable. And they're doing really empowering feministy things without making it all pink, which is like, yeah. oh, someone gets it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's acceptable to hold both of those ideas in your head at once and go, I really like what they're doing with their advertising, but I wish they could treat their factory workers better. Mm. Like, And like we're allowed to hold nuanced views as much as looking at you, Twitter. Uh, a lot of our <laughs> online engagements suggest that we can't. Um, so I think it is important Absolutely. to just kind of recognize that like that advertising campaign is probably going to be really good. It's probably going to beneficially affect a lot of women. H&M should probably treat their factory workers better. With them, things of interest, uh, we have been talking to you today about how your social media feed is sponsored and also about pharmaceutical advertising and how <laughs> weird the Melbourne Cup is and a lot of other things. We had good chats today, I think. Yeah. We've got a Twitter, we're at Casting Interest. We've got a Facebook page, which now has things on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, we've got a website, which may be where you're listening to this, uh, thingsofinterest.co, uh, and you can email us at castinginterest at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much for listening to this. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us some stars on the iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this, share it with a friend, maybe, and then you and your friend can also have great chats like we're having right now also michelle i'm planning on making your episode the next one we had a fan request the next one it shall be fantastic but as you just heard like we've had a fan request if you want to hear us talk about something drop us a line send us an email tweet at us leave a message on our facebook there there are a lot of media <laughs> yeah. that we're on we're Use very available of them. <laughs> fantastic <laughs> i'm serena chen i'm sophia friend and stay interesting. <laughs>